Hi, this is Ben Zorns with the LSE Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Power of the Tongue. It's happened to the best of us. You're conversing with some friends and suddenly you blurt out some statement of venomous malice. You think, where in the world did that come from? Our tongues were bought by the blood of Jesus and only the coal from the altar of his holiness will harness our mouth to be a vehicle of his glorious truth. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Power of the tongue. I sort of have anniversary editions of certain messages. It was about a year ago that I gave a message called The Dangers of the Untamed Tongue. And this isn't that message, however, it deals with the tongue. And so there will be similarities. It's sort of hard. You can only talk for so long about the tongue. One of the reasons why this is one of the anniversary messages is because, for whatever reason, we can understand the significance of how a tongue is wielded in the human body, and we can be awakened to it, we can be convicted about it, and then for whatever reason, we can go back into old patterns with it. I would like to give you a quick description of something, and for those that hang around Ellerslie, this description will seem uh, <clears throat> like you're you know, coming home for the weekend to a nice home-cooked meal. This is just classic illustration at Ellerslie when we talk about the body. You know, because the, the tongue is a member, James, in the book of James, chapter 3, it calls it the littlest member of the body. It's a tongue. And it's considered a member. Isn't that strange? So I guess in the body of Christ, uh, we have tongues. Wouldn't that be a strange thought? I wonder who in here is the tongue. You look back at me. What in the world? Uh, I don't know. Tongue's a dangerous thing to be, as you guys will, will find out. It's held to a high level of accountability. Uh, so this is a body. Uh, this room, sort of like the rib cage, you know, those uh, big rafter things up there, like the ribs, just to give you a mental picture here, okay? That's the entryway, the little reception area, and then we have a big factory area, open warehouse type area where we have all sorts of machines set up because we're producing something. If we're producing the right thing, it's called the fruit of the spirit. If we're producing the wrong thing, it's called the fruit of the flesh, but that all depends on who is seated in the director's chair back in the glassed-in office. Okay, because if we look through the glass, we can tell a lot about this life. And just by seeing who is in that director's chair, I could tell you what kind of fruit is coming out of this life. Okay? So these different machines are the different aspects, the different members of your body. How they are being used, well, it defines, it's defined by who is in control of those machines, which is defined by who is seated in that chair. Okay, some people could call that chair a throne, but, you know, it's just a director's chair. It's basically the one who is responsible for that which takes place in this operation. Okay, so if we take a close look, some of us might find that if this was our body, whoa, what are we doing there? We're seated in the director's chair. And guess what? If we're seated there, I can guarantee you, without knowing any more about your life, and I could say, well, the machines in your life are producing bad fruit because that's the principle of sin. The principle of sin hinges upon the fact of who sits in that chair. Sin, by definition, it would be an oversimplified definition at one level, but still a true definition, is self in the director's chair. You on the throne of your life. The result of that, it seems strange. If you were in the director's chair, wouldn't it seem like you'd be in control? But you're not. You see, the principle of sin is all part of our elaborate ruse and that is you sit seated on the, in the control position of your life, but you're not in control of your life. 
You think you are, but you're not. There is another character that is roaming your factory, and he's called the old man or the flesh. And he's actually the one that controls this body, and he controls these members. And that's why it's called the fruit of the flesh, okay, which is everything that opposes the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so the first thing that we would like to assess here in this message is this little director's room here, okay, for the day we could call it the heart, okay, but it's the center of who you are. It's sort of that holy of holies domain, and if you are in that position, then everything goes wrong in your life, and since we're talking about the tongue, everything that now this tongue is being wielded for is going to be for the glory of self. And as a result, your tongue is going to be used in a corrupt fashion and it will actually bring death to your life and to the world around you. The great secret to the tongue is changing who's seated in that director's chair. When Jesus comes in and takes what is rightfully his, this whole body of yours was purchased on the cross, when he moves in and takes his rightful position, then suddenly the old man, the flesh, no longer has control over this operation. And as a result, these members that once were used for the agenda of darkness can actually be set free to be used for the agenda of God. I don't know about you if you're sick and tired of having your body used by the enemy and having your mouth totally destroy not only your life but those around you. Well, there's a secret, and it's called the gospel. It's an open secret, by the way, but for some reason, the enemy works hard, and he's able to cover it up in our culture so that we misunderstand its intent. Most of us have concluded that the gospel merely is a covering or somehow a a dealing or a forgiveness with our sins, our mistakes that we've made while seated in that position, or the bad fruit that has come out of our machines. And God is able to say, you know what, I see that you're all messed up, and I see what's coming out of your life, but I forgive you of all that. I want you to realize it is that, but it is a lot more. What the gospel is, is a setting you free from that position of being in control of your life, and as a result, your life not working as it should. The gospel comes in, Jesus comes in through the work done on the cross, and he frees you from that position of the throne. He actually crucified the old man upon the cross. That's what it says in Romans 6. The old man is crucified, dead. He no longer has power and authority over this operation. So now, this operation can be used the way God intended it to be used. Okay, so let's dig into this message, the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now, one of the things we're going to discuss is the fact, you know, what it says about the tongue in the book of James. And it calls it the littlest member. It likens it to a rudder on a ship. That even though it's this little small piece on a ship, it actually controls the direction of the whole ship. Now, all of us know that the tongue itself does not have a mind, will, and an emotion to it. Okay? Like my tongue is just, you know, running rogue and rebellious of the rest of my body. Okay? The tongue is an instrument that is being controlled by this room. Whatever is taking place in that director's room, it's like you almost have an intercom, a... uh, You know one of those things you press down, and it's like, uh, excuse me, aisle five, aisle five, we need cleanup. It's one of those types of things. You have that in there. And then if you look on the outside of this big warehouse, there's like a speaker. 
Just a little speaker, it's not a big thing, but boy, does that speaker project. So it's a little member, however, it declares what's going on inside. And if what's going on inside isn't healthy, guess what comes out of that speaker? It's this horrible screeching sound. Turn the thing off. You can't turn off that crazy tongue. The tongue seems to have a life of its own, but it's actually not the speaker, even though, you know, we'd be happy if we could just tear down that crazy speaker known as the tongue. It's what's going on inside that is creating that very bad noise that's coming out. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. This speaker system on your life, this foghorn that you have, obviously God's intent is that it be useful for life. However, the enemy's agenda is to keep you trapped in that director's chair with the flesh controlling that speaker system. And as a result, in your life, you find death. By your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Now, imagine I put a piece of paper in front of you, and I said, read this statement. And say it was a statement of truth about Jesus Christ and the gospel, and that you were yielding your entire body over to him and your life from this point forward. The fact that you read something and actually uh, say the words actually isn't what justifies you. However, this statement might cause you to think that. You see, what is coming out of that speaker system is testifying of if there has been justification inside or if there still remains condemnation, okay? Your words are the indicators of what is taking place inside of that room. The principle of the two. This last week at Ellerslie, we began the discipleship process, so we're just headed into week two. And in week one, we began to talk about one of the key themes in Scripture, and it's basically the firstborn and the secondborn. There's always two. And with this principle of two, you'll notice that the firstborn is always of the flesh, and the secondborn is always of the spirit. So in Genesis 25, we have the picture of Rebecca, and she's pregnant. And in her womb is this wrestling match. And she comes to God and she's like, what's going on inside of me? And God actually answers the question. And he says, two nations are in thy womb. And two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people. And the elder shall serve the younger. Well, what comes out of her? Twins. Esau is born first. He's hairy like a garment all over. It's a little awkward description. And then we have... Jacob, who comes out next, grabbing a hold of the heel. And he's called the heel grabber, or Jacob, Jacob. And so what we have is this picture, and it's amazing, but in the Hebrew culture, Esau becomes, becomes the lineage of that which is firstborn, or that which is self-sufficient in of itself, that which is of the flesh. His grandson, Amalek, is considered the first nation, the Amalekites. And so the first, first, first comes out of Esau, and it's at enmity with God. It's against his kingdom. It's against Jacob. And guess what Jacob, his name becomes after he grabs a hold. First, he starts out grabbing a hold of the heel of Esau, thinking the flesh can somehow enable him to get what he's after in life. But he cannot find it by trying to get it from Esau. Even after conning him for his birthright, he still doesn't have it. He's missing something in his life. So heel grabber becomes God grabber. And he wrestles through the night and he gets a new name and it's called Israel. These are the two nations, the kingdom of the flesh, the kingdom of the spirit, and they're in our womb, too. It's a picture of the gospel right here. 
You have two things laboring. You have the spirit of God who's saying, I need your body. I need your life. Yield. And then you have the first kingdom, the way in which you were originally born. And as a result, all your members are held hostage to its agenda. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15. It enunciates exactly what I'm saying. It says, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. In other words, the natural is first. And afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Flesh, spirit. The spirit is not the first born. It's the second born, which is why you must be born again. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other. So remember, this, this little section I'm going through is called the principle of the two. So let's look at the two. All throughout history in the Old Testament, you have Cain, who was born first, and then Abel. They both brought a sacrifice. Guess what? God didn't like Cain's, and he esteemed Abel's. And then Cain didn't like it too much, and he killed Abel. This is how the whole story starts, okay? Firstborn, secondborn. God, for whatever reason, is not pacified and pleased with that which the firstborn can offer. And you see this all throughout the Bible. Your flesh cannot please God. Your own efforts in the flesh, with you seated in that director's chair, cannot please God. But the second, Abel, is able to. It wasn't supposed to be a pun, but it was a nice one. (laughs) And then we have the sons of Abraham. Ishmael, Isaac. Ishmael was the one born of the flesh, the one of self-manipulation. It's like, okay, Sarah's too old to bear children. We could have Hagar, her handmaiden, and, you know, we could get this thing working. Ishmael. And Abraham says, couldn't Ishmael stand before you, God? He says, no. No, he cannot. It says of Ishmael that he was a wild donkey of a man. Yeah, that's the flesh. You know, your life, you know, that before coming to Christ Jesus, some of your lives right now, it's a wild donkey of a life. Firstborn life doesn't please God. It's the secondborn that does, the one born of promise. Then we have Esau and Jacob. Firstborn Esau, secondborn Jacob. And then we have Jacob the heel grabber, which is such a picture of us. Many of us in this room, we're the ones that want what God has. We don't know how to get it. And so in our own self-effort, we're attempting to please God. We're the heel grabber. We're Jacob. We're not yet Israel. Israel's the one that grabs a hold of God and wrestles through the night and says, you're the one that has what I need. I can't find it in Esau. I can't find it in myself. It's you that has it. That's why in Christian history, it's called the dark night of the soul. When we're at that point where we're sick of ourselves and we realize, I can't do it. I do not have it in me. And we grab a hold of God. And we become Israel, the God grabber. And then we have Leah and Rachel. Remember, Jacob, his first wife, he wanted Rachel, and he got Leah, which is sort of awkward. Don't you feel bad for Leah? But she was the first wife, right? And the first wife, in this case, just like our flesh, is very fruitful, okay? Leah is very fruitful, and I hate to make Leah sound like she's the flesh, okay? But of her is Reuben. He he was the rightful leader of Jacob's sons. He was the firstborn. However, who ends up leading Jacob's sons? The son of the secondborn, Rachel. And of course, she's barren like all the other uh, women that seem to bear the line of the seed. 
And so Joseph is of the second, and he's the one that leads the 12 sons of Jacob. It's, it's actually rather remarkable. And then Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh is born first, but guess who ends up getting the blessing? The second born. Okay, this isn't an accident. This is very purposeful in God's kingdom. Saul's the firstborn. Well, the first king. We should say it that way. He's head and shoulders above all of Israel. He was Israel's Goliath. This guy's massive. The nation of Israel is like, that's the one we want. And guess what? He was born of the flesh. He wanted it on his terms. And even when God rejected him, he wouldn't give up his throne. Doesn't that sound like us? God has made it clear in his word, get off the throne. And we're like, we're trying to come up with a justification of why we can stay there. We're exactly like Saul. The incoming king, David, comes in. He hucks javelins at him. We don't want to be Saul. Get off the throne. Old Covenant, which could not uh, produce righteousness, it exposed righteousness, it exposed the problem. It was a schoolmaster, which leads us to what? Jesus. The New Covenant, grace. Adam, Jesus. Adam is the father of all those born of the flesh. And Jesus is the father of all those born of the spirit. Natural birth, supernatural birth. Your first birth, the way you pop out of the womb, you're not wired to be able to please God right now. You're actually bent incorrectly. And as you go about your living, you find that you have a gravitational pull towards that chair. Thunk. And you deliberately choose and you rebel against your God. There's something wrong with you. However, the second, the second birth is a supernatural birth. It's not something you did. It's not something you can explain in the natural. It's something that only God can explain, okay? That's the principle of the two. So, this is going to sound a little strange, and I don't want you to get intimidated by the word tongues, okay? Just even the word, you put an S on the end of tongue, and everyone goes, <gasps> and some people are like, finally, we're going to start preaching about that here, Okay? <laughs> I'm not talking about Pentecostal tongues here, okay? Just so you know, that isn't the theme of this. I'm not saying it's not a biblical concept. I'm saying it's not the theme of this message. The two tongues, okay? Meaning there's a tongue of the flesh and there's a tongue of the spirit. As revealed in Psalm 12. So this is just in one, it's a short little book of the Bible. Tongue number one, the proud tongue. They speak vanity, every one with his neighbor. They, with flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Okay, where is this coming from? It's what's in that director's chamber. What is, it, what is in that glassed-in office? See, self is on the throne. Self is the one that is manipulated in and through the use of his tongue. We learn how to speak what is needed to be spoken. And we say what is needed to be spoken to gain our ends, to manipulate people to think this so that we can get this out of them. That's what flattery is. Flattery has all sorts of forms. But it's the, it's the tongue that is going to speak proud things. Well, what's pride? The self-exaltation. This is about me. Well, that's the first tongue right there. Tongue number one. And then, see, this ends in verse three. There's a few verses in between, and this is how the the chapter is basically closing, okay? It says, tongue number two, the pure tongue. The words of the Lord, in contrast, are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation and forever. It's a great statement, by the way. It's a statement about the words of the Lord. The tongue of the Lord is completely different. 
I mean, he literally, when he speaks, there's such integrity in his words. They're tried seven times over and purified. They're so trustworthy. They've been measured against truth itself. And they're found perfect. And even generation after generation after generation after this, they will be found perfect. There is no flaw in his words. Wouldn't it be nice if the words that came out of your mouth could be like that? And you're like, oh, that's impossible. Well, that's what this message is about. See, there's two tongues. Most of us are wielding the first tongue. But it's the second tongue that Jesus Christ has come to renovate in our life. The description of the tongue. This is in James chapter 3. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, this is a very fascinating line, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Now, you know what most of us do with that? We try and bridle our words. And we try and get our words down, and it's like, okay, I'm not going to speak. Some of us would be a lot better off if we didn't. Okay, but that's the way we try and solve the issue here, because I could be a perfect man if I govern my words. However, I've already given you the secret to this. Even if you somehow sealed your mouth shut with duct tape, did you know that you wouldn't be a perfect man? unless that which is in that director's chamber is changed. That's the secret. You must change the ownership. You must change the rulership of your inner life. And then the words that begin to come out flow from that. Who now has the intercom? Jesus. When Jesus has the intercom of your life, suddenly the words are pure words. They're true words. They're measured words, as opposed to haphazard words. It's funny, even if you put duct tape on our mouths, our communication will come out, and it's still our words. We're going to be speaking. Have you ever seen rolled eyes? You should never be able to figure that one out. My mom would be saying something to me, and I'd roll my eyes. I didn't say anything to her, though. And she would get mad at me and send me to my room, or worse. And I'd be saying, I didn't even say anything. You spoke to me with your eyes. That's right. Okay, and now I'm a parent. I know that one. The old eye communication. Body posture. There's so many ways that we communicate. We are communicating and we have words even if they're not coming out of our mouth. The tongue is merely a symbol of communication. That which is, ver- that which is spoken into this earth to declare the state of that which is in our director's chair. So if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Wow. So in other words, if this could hold, this could change, and our tongue was showing that it was bridled. Do you know that our whole body is going to come into alignment? Your tongue is the first fruits, if you will, of a changed life. If your tongue is not yet changed, then that shows you that there's probably other problems in your life. But if your tongue is changed, that's showing you that God is, has a grip and a foothold upon your life that He's going to increase in an ever increasing measure. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body 
and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. It's not one of those lines that sort of makes you go, whoo. The tongue is a fire, and its fire seems to be set, up, set on fire by <clears throat> hell. This isn't a good fire. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. No man can fix this problem. No man can tame this beast, this fire. No one can. That doesn't give us a lot of hope, does it? Well, there is one. There is one that has come, God in the flesh, that has given you everything you need for a tamed tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear, bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, remember the director's chamber, envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Introducing the tongue. So here's our little summary right from the very middle of it. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell, for every kind of beast and bird or reptile or creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. It is a little member. It is a fire. It defiles the whole body. It sets on course, the course, it sets on fire the course of nature. It is an unruly evil. It is full of deadly poison. No man can tame it. All right, now many of you already understand this, just experientially in your life with your tongue. Now it's, again, not your tongue that is to blame. On judgment day, God doesn't just cut out your tongue and stomp on it. And say, that stupid tongue, boy, were you a wonderful person if you just didn't have that tongue. But now that I've cut it out of you, you are pure and holy and right. You see, that isn't how it works at Judgment Day. Your tongue is the evidence of that which is inside. The romance between the heart and the tongue. There's some kind of bond between these two. You see, what is taking place in, in you, in that director's chamber... That place where the intercom button is, there seems to be some type of romantic connection or relationship with that speaker on the outside of your being. So let's check into that a little. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. So, in other words, this heart seems to be the wellspring of that which is coming out of the tongue. Okay, so 
That was the link I was creating earlier, and that's what it says here in Matthew. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is good. So if you have a good treasure, Jesus, in your heart, then you have a well to draw out of, and your tongue can now speak things of life. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The heart of the righteous studieth to answer, but the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. When your heart is wicked, when that basically means in a very quick summation, self in its wrongful place. When your heart is wicked, well, guess what? The mouth, what does it say? The wicked, out of the, but the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. You ever felt that in your life? Where it's just like, I need to stop talking here. But it just keeps coming out. That person got under your skin. They did the wrong thing. And look, there it goes. Just think about Jesus. Here he is. He's falsely accused. He's being mocked and ridiculed. He's the king of kings. Yet he is led as a lamb unto slaughter, and he opens not his mouth. See any difference between you and Jesus? I mean, you got the smallest little slight, and out comes that verbal vomit onto everyone around you. Jesus got the greatest slight, and he didn't even open his mouth. See, there's something different on the inside of Jesus and us. And we need what Jesus had inside of him, inside of us. The firstborn tongue. Remember how I said there's two tongues? The firstborn tongue and the secondborn tongue. This is the proud tongue. The brackish waters or the salt water. Cursing and contention come out of this tongue. In the mouth of the foolish is a rod of pride. Only by pride cometh contention. So when pride is at the root, self-exaltation is at the root of your life, then out of your life is coming cursing and contention. A fool's lips bring strife, and his mouth calls for blows. One of the best ways to describe a fool, Proverbs spends a lot of time on the fool, and most of us always think it's talking about someone else other than us. But that director's chamber, if you're sitting on the throne, I cannot think of a greater, more foolish thing than that could be done in all the universe than for you to claim the spot that belongs to God. Wouldn't you agree? God says, uh, yeah, that's my seat. And you come whipping in and say, no, I'm going to sit here. Hmm. Fool. Uh-huh. And so a fool's lips bring strife and his mouth calls for blows. I'm going to come back to this scripture because you'll see that his mouth calls for blows. And that's going to play a part as we move forward here. The second born tongue. This is the pure tongue. The tongue that is probably foreign to many of us. But it's the pure tongue. It's fresh water and living water that comes out of this. It's clear, clean water. And it's the mouth of blessing. It gives blessing. When it speaks, people are blessed. They're built stronger. They're edified. This is a a statement about Jesus in 1 Peter. Who did no sin. Jesus, who did no sin, sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. It was purity. Open up his mouth, purity. But it's not just his mouth. See, the mouth is merely the enunciation or the revelatory dimension of the human life or the human body to show us what's really on the inside. He didn't have any guile in his mouth, which means what? He didn't have any guile in his heart. 
Because out of the abundance of that heart, the mouth speaks. And so when you look inside the mouth of Jesus, there was no guile, which means by looking inside of his mouth, we're able to see what's inside of his heart. And there was no guile in his heart, no deceit. There was no subtlety in craft, as we talked about last week, what the serpent lugged around. He was honest, pure, perfect love. And this is a statement of those that follow Jesus. Okay, in Revelation, listen to this. And in their mouth was found no guile. Oh, this isn't just talking about Jesus now. This is talking about those that follow the lamb whithersoever he goes, which is a statement right before this. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And all of us go, that's the way I want to be. Right there. Now, here's the key. If you try and remodel your life from the mouth in, you will fail. It's like, if I could just get my mouth down, if I could just get it to say the things that would be good, then I could start working on some of this other junk inside my life. No, that isn't how it works. First, you must let Jesus have his rightful place in your life and let him renovate you from the inside out. But the first testimony of the changed life is that God grabs a hold of your tongue and he sticks a harness on it. And he says, this tongue now belongs to me. We call that the second born tongue. The classic justifications of the unruly tongue. So why would any of us keep talking the way we're talking? Because some of us are just plain rude. Some of us, you know, we, when you deal with social dynamics, you, know, you have people that don't know what they're saying and they don't realize that what they're saying is just rude. Okay, and we have a, in society, we have a certain grace for people that seem a little ignorant of social propriety. But a Christian should not be ignorant of these things. I, there's a lot written about the tongue. I mean, the book of James almost seems like its theme is the tongue. And it's pretty straightforward about it. That a Christian is marked by a tongue that speaks that which God would speak. It speaks words of kindness and gentleness and love. Yes, it will rebuke, but it will also exhort. Its words are to bring life and not death. It brings conviction, yes, but not condemnation. In other words, yes, its words may sting at times because they're words of love, but it does not undermine and bash people and curse, and it does not bring contention that breeds self-exaltation or brings unnecessary division. That's not how the tongue of a Christian should ever work. So why in the world do we behave this way? How can we continue to justify it? And so that's what this little list is. These are classic justifications of the unruly tongue. Your tongue is just going crazy. And you're like, hey, you know, I'm just doing what I need to do. Are you sure about that? I'm just being honest. Have you ever heard that one? You know, someone needs to just be honest here. I'm just being honest. How many times... Even in prayer, are people honest about things? And they're like, you know what? I just heard this about so-and-so, and I just think it's important that we're honest. Yeah, well, that, you know what? That's not the way we should be honest. I'm all for being honest. But you know, just because I'm being honest doesn't mean I have to share everything that is inside my head. You know, one of the things I'm going to show you in just a little bit here is that God doesn't share everything that's inside of his head. I know that sounds strange. But there's a time and a place. There are things that I find out that are actually inappropriate for me to share. And if I shared them with you, I wouldn't do any edifying in here. There's a lot of things I know. 
there's things I find out that are actually inappropriate for me to share with Leslie. Why? Because it would be a bait of fear for her. It's not going to help her. I don't need to share that. And so when she does need to know, of course. In other words, I'm not hiding things from her in a moral sense. It's like, oh, I need to cover that up. That's not what I mean. I mean, there's certain things that are just not edifying. They're not going to bring life to those around you. Okay? And believe me, I could come up with a whole bunch of illustrations, but those probably wouldn't be very edifying either. I'm just being honest. It's good that you're honest. Okay? But that isn't necessarily a license to say what you're saying right now. If it's in my head, shouldn't it go airborne via my tongue? I mean, if I think it, shouldn't it come out? I've actually heard that rationalization. What do you expect me to do? Like, block it? You know, repress my thinking? Uh, if that's what you want to call it, sure. But I didn't need to hear that, okay? That's not helping anyone. And I'm going to give you sort of the, the playbook for Christian tongues as we move forward, okay? I say this because I love you. Hmm. Are you sure you're not saying it because you're wanting to put in a nice jab? It's like, and, you know, I just wanted you to know that you lost today. And I, I, I figured I would break it to you that I won uh, because I love you. I didn't want you to hear it from anyone else. Uh, <laughs> Okay, make sure it is because you love them. And sometimes if you love someone, you won't speak it. Okay? In other words, these things need to be weighed. And what is your motive? Is it Jesus and Jesus' glory or is it you? Who's in that director's chair when you're speaking? The person needed to come down a few notches. I mean, hey, you know, this guy was just getting a big head. It's up to me to take out my little pin and go pop. You needed to come down a few notches, and you took it upon yourself to be the one to do it, okay? If someone needs to come down a few notches, the best way you can deal with that is to pray for them. If you see a head getting a little too big, get on your knees, okay? They started it, and as a result, you're going to try and finish it, okay? The last word, who gets the last word? That is only a game of self on the throne, are you willing to have them get the last word and you absorb it? They strike you on one cheek and you turn to them the other also. Remember Jesus? Yes, who got the last word? Well, you could say Jesus, but he didn't open his mouth. He got the last word from rising from the dead. That's how he got the last word. And he'll get the last word by coming down with his mighty host and putting his feet down upon the Mount of Olives and every knee bowing and every tongue confessing. Jesus will get the last word. This is his business, not yours. When people strike out against you, let Jesus have the last word for you. One of the great pictures in scripture is uh, Mary of Bethany. Martha, remember what she, she's busy bustling about doing the work and Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus? And Martha accuses her in front of Jesus. And who speaks in Mary's defense? Jesus. You know what? Mary, the same Mary is at the feet of Jesus again, and she's pouring out her spikenard on him. And guess what? Judas cries out and says, hey, that money should have been given to the poor. And he makes, you know, his little argument. Does Mary speak up in her own defense? No. Who speaks up in her defense? Jesus. Let Jesus be your defense. Pull a Mary. Defiled Christian communications. The Christian, and I put Christian in quotes, the Christian tongue is controlled by the flesh. Prayer gossip. This is one of the most dangerous things in Christianity today as far as I'm concerned. Because it's under the banner of prayer and most of us have this thought that if someone's praying, it has to be pure. I mean, it's prayer. Isn't prayer pure? 
How many times have you ever heard that thing where someone in a prayer time will actually gossip about someone else and then use the line, and we, we're praying for them, God, because we love them, and it's just important you know, that you know, everyone know this, of course. And we actually are denigrating others. You know, and we have this one prayer about Rob and his disorder, okay? And it just comes out, and by the way, if your name's Rob, this is no connection with you, okay? Rob and his disorder, and you know, everyone that's in the prayer time is thinking, well, this is news to me that Rob has a disorder. <laughs> and as a result, we are undermining Rob in our praying as opposed to edifying the body of Christ, but it's all under the banner of love and prayer. And it's dangerous. Spiritual manipulation. God has spoken. How do you argue with that? When someone says, yeah, I just came out of prayer time and God said to me, and they give a quote. Have you ever heard that classic line where you know, a, a, either a guy or a girl come up to the opposite sex and they, and they say, God has told me that you're going to be my spouse. <laughs> it happens a lot, okay? Well, you know how awkward it is to, to disagree? Because what you're doing, in a sense, is having to disagree with God. Okay, you're putting authority behind your words that you need to be very watchful not to place there, okay? We must tremble before we start making declarations and say, God said, all right? God did speak, and I'm not saying God can't speak in the here and now to you, but I'm saying you be very watchful about how you wield that because this can be a form of manipulation in the church of Jesus Christ, okay? We wanna be watchful with the way we speak. So it's not the opposite being true that God can't speak, it's the fact that if God is speaking, well, then when you speak it, do it in such a way which does not put the authority of canon and scripture behind your words, okay? What we bend to as the church of Jesus Christ is the word of God in text, which is also the word of God in person. And so when you get the extra revelation, it must submit and be tested. Remember, his words are tried seven times. So the words spoken by any Christian must be tested if you want to say it this way, seven times over against Scripture before they start going airborne. And so it must match with the Word of God in text. We must be, have a watchfulness to our words because that's a form of manipulation. Super spiritual control. There is a strange thing that I noticed in Christianity. You know how men will do the old submit woman, that type of thing? They have one Scripture. The men know one Scripture. One, I don't know that they've ever picked up their Bible, but someone, and I don't know who it was, told them that it says wives must submit to their husbands, which is, by the way, a truth, okay? It's not to diminish that either. However, that's the only scripture they know. And so they wield it with the power and the authority of scripture, but that would be a form of wielding scripture for personal gain. The next line. But then there's this opposite side where women will say that my man is not being the head, Okay, which is a huge problem that we have in Christianity today. The man is not rising up and taking spiritual leadership. This is what I want us to be watchful of, and we could call it super spiritual control. When a man is not rising up, it creates a vulnerability for the wife. Okay, so granted, this is not a healthy thing. But what a woman can do is badger her husband for not rising up. And then, get this, when he does begin to rise up, she actually doesn't really want him to rise up. She likes having him under her thumb. And so when he begins to rise up, she sort of shows a little you know, friction. 
to that because actually she wants to be in control of the home, but she can control her husband with a super spiritual presentation. You need to be the head of the home and you're not being the head of the home and here I have to do all the spiritual work. And then he's like, okay, honey, I'm ready to rise up. Well, I don't, I don't know. You're not rising up properly. I don't know what it is, but it's a form of spiritual control and I want us to be watchful of these things. Belittling others. We do not tear down those around us. We have to be very watchful with our words. Irreverence and coarseness. There is such a movement in Christianity today that is allowing in, I mean, it's, all, it's become cool and hip for pastors to use foul language. I, it, it's very mystifying to me, but the culture loves it. You know, in the younger generation, the collegiates are like, oh yeah, my pastor cusses in his sermons. You know, it's actually really cool. Because it brings it down to just sort of the real level. Well, here's what I'd say. Truth doesn't get brought down to the dirt. It brings us up. And so let's make sure that we maintain in all of our words, in all of our speaking, the dignity of heaven, the behavior of heaven, the fear of God upon us. Exaggeration and lying. It goes without saying that, you know, this is not something that's allowed. When I was, first of all, when I was growing up, I never thought of exaggeration as being lying. You know, it's just stretching things just a little. And... You know, I used to have all sorts of tales that I had because I felt insecure in and of who I, who I was and what I was able to accomplish. And so I added to my weight. I'm one of those guys that thinks I'm too thin. So I would add to my weight 10 pounds. Isn't that funny? And I would add to my bench press, you know, 10, 20 pounds. I would add to my, you know, I'd subtract from my 400-yard dash time, you know, a certain amount. And so when I'd talk with people, I'd be, suddenly alt- I'd be subtly altering the data about my life. That's not really lying. I mean, I, I really can lift, you know, 90% of what I said. However, it was a deliberate deception. I remember when God began to show that to me, I was horrified. First of all, I wasn't too excited about the fact that it said liars go to the lake of fire. That didn't go over very well with me, which, you know, I started to feel the heat, you know, pretty quickly. I was like, okay, God, what do I need to do? Straighten this tongue out. Lying... I think it goes without saying, okay? If I said, liars, go to the lake of fire, well, that should warm you up pretty quick to say, dear Lord Jesus, please change what is going on with this tongue. Harshness and frustration. I'd say that out of this list, this is probably the number one thing that I've had to deal with over the past years. Most of those things, you know, not that I haven't had them, but they've faded over time as God has taken hold of my life. And I think there was one blind spot that I had for quite a few years, and it was frustration. Because I wasn't frustrated with people. I was frustrated with things like bad directions, bad signage on the road. That was, they didn't even mark that. Come back, I see? And Leslie's like, it's not that big of a deal. And I'm like, that is a bad sign. (laughs) How about when I'm hanging blinds and uh, the that metal thing on the side that it needs to snap into is bent a little? It came bent. Stupid, stupid thing. What's coming out? I'm blaring through my squawk box here. I'm speaking. I'm giving words that aren't coming from the kingdom of heaven. You follow me? But it's a blind spot because I'm not standing in front of you and you know, saying all this horrible stuff about you. I'm not frustrated with you. I'm frustrated with a thing. A sign doesn't have any feelings. It's fine. 
You know, I'm sure it's going to sleep just fine tonight. Okay, I can get mad at it if I want. No? You see, there's a problem inside of me. I'm catering to something. I'm yielding to something that is coming along. We just call it frustration, irritation. Okay, so harshness isn't necessarily maybe my issue, but I'm harsh with that blind. Trying to jam it in. Okay, I don't know at what level you identify with this list. However, I want you to know that we as Christians have come up with a creative justification for why this list matches with our lives and we feel no conviction about it. And I would like to simply say, if you have some elaborate justification, you might as well let it blow away today. I want you to feel conviction. And I want you to sense that something is not right in your soul. And that this tongue is being wielded to do things that is harming people around you and harming your soul. Let's get this straight. We're the church of Jesus Christ. Every word matters. It's one of those scriptures, you know how we stick things up on our uh, refrigerator to remind us of wonderful, pleasant things? This is one of those scriptures that probably would be good up on the, on the refrigerator, but most of us aren't that excited to put it up there. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers. Classic Jesus. How can you, being evil, speak good things? You hear that? How can you, sitting on the director's chair of your life, utilize your tongue to speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. But I say to you, that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Gulp. Every idle word. The word for even idle in that situation, rhema, it's, it's like the words that we would even cast as having a hue of God upon them. These are dangerous things. Under the banner of the Christian life, we speak forth. We're representative of the kingdom. And we bring forth this weighty word because we're representatives of the king. When we speak, aren't we speaking what he would want us to speak? We are held accountable for every word. It's okay to gulp because there's good news. Okay? Conviction is not, is not your enemy. It's your friend. Because when God convicts, there's always hope. If we were just driving you into the dirt saying, I can't believe how disgusting you are. Well, that doesn't offer us anything. However, for us to realize that something's wrong here. Because my mouth is not being wielded, it was not wielding the power of God. It's not showcasing the glory of God. Something's wrong here. Does God share everything? The godly art of discretion. This is just a fascinating thing. Only that which is profitable is what God shares. You know the Bible doesn't share everything that happened in history. It shares only that which is needful, which can be very irritating to us at times because there's this great story and it's unfolding and we're at the edge of our seat and all it says is, and God wrought a great victory that day. That's it? That's all you're giving me? God says, that's all you need. Oh! See, God is the author of discretion. He holds his tongue. It's very fascinating. He has a sense of humor when he does it too. Only that which is edifying. God does not speak anything that doesn't bring life. Remember when the Father spoke his word into this world? The Son? The word of God came? The ultimate word expressed from God, Jesus? 
He did, it says he came to bring life and that more abundantly. That's what that word came to do. So God speaks words that bring life. Only that which is necessary, as is proven in the word of God. Only that which is honorable. Only that which is loving. Only that which is pure. Only that which keeps a trust. Only that which preserves truth. And only that which brings God glory. God the secret keeper. The name that no one else knows. Listen to this. This is one of my favorites. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Okay, listen to this. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. You're like, uh, what is that name? No, no, he's the only one that knows. Ah! Well, he has a name written. Some kind of name, and I want to know what it is. But no, no, no. You don't need to, Eric. You're fine. What? Why'd you even tell me then? You didn't have to say it, God. Now I'm fascinated. The secret things belong to him. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. And listen to this one. This is really fascinating. But of that day and that hour knows no man. No, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. The Father knows something that Jesus doesn't even know? Oh, it's intriguing. Okay? In other words, it's called discretion. There is a secret. There's a mystery that's held back purposely. All is not supposed to be written. Only that which is needful. Listen to this in John 21. You see, there are things that Jesus did that we don't know about. What is written was written because it's needful. God knows what the church of Jesus Christ needs. And anything that wasn't included wasn't needed, which is really an interesting thought. And there there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. The end of the book of John. That's how it finishes. There's other things that Jesus did. Now, what's funny is if you look at the four Gospels, many of them are the same stories over and over again. And he did more than that, but God seems to want to make it clear. This matters. Okay, now, what lesson do we get out of that? God doesn't say everything that's inside of him. You follow me? So as a basic principle, discretion is a restraint of the tongue to only proclaim and to communicate outwardly that which is needful, that which is edifying, that which brings life. So discretion. The tongue governed by grace, held to the highest honor and harnessed to speak only that which is edifying. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridles not his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. So if your tongue is not bridled, your religion, your presentation of godliness is empty. It's not actual. So in other words, the tongue seems to be a defining element in the reality of your spiritual health. If your spiritual health is real, your tongue will make it known. It's called the confession of faith. Okay? It's also called the confession of sin. That's a show that, I mean, it sounds strange that a confession of sin would show that something's healthy, but it is. 
Because you're in agreement with God. God is right. And what was taking place inside of this life was wrong. Edifying. It means to build up. So that which builds stronger, that which strengthens and fortifies, that which adds more of what is needful. So look at these scriptures. Ephesians 4, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. That's a command, by the way. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Wow. Now, here's, here's what you could be feeling. How do I do that? How do I not let corrupt communication proceed out of my mouth? Because it's a command. God is not toying with you. He's not just setting you up for failure. He will allow you to fail. If you're continuing to sit on that throne, he has to expose the root problem. He has to bring you to the end where you say, God, I can't obey. Something is wrong with me. He says, I know. That's why I came. I came to dethrone you and to enthrone myself in your life and in your body so that your life from this day forward might work. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. You could say the same thing about words. There are going to be words that maybe they don't tear anyone down, but they also aren't edifying. They're not building anything up. As a result, those could be called idle words. They're meaningless. They're empty. Edify one another. Another command. Seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. Let all things be done unto edifying. But we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. Starting to see that this is a key theme to Paul. No, we build up those around us. That's what we do. We're Christians. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. So measuring every word, the canon-tested tongue. The canon, we haven't taught this yet in this semester, but the canon is the 66 books of the Bible, and I'll go through the history of how that is formed. But when something is canon-tested, that means tested against the word of God. It is measured. It is proven. Because the Bible itself has been tested seven times over, purified like silver. It is God's word. So therefore, whenever we are going to speak, before it comes out, it should be tested against the canon. We do not speak anything that isn't tested. When someone speaks to us, what do we do? Same thing. Before we receive it and begin to cherish it and begin to cultivate it, what do we do? We test it against the canon. If it cannot stand the canon test, well, then it shouldn't be spoken or it shouldn't be heeded. Just makes sense, right? So whether someone's speaking to you or you're speaking to them, words need to be measured and tested. They need to be purified like silver seven times over against the word of God. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the judgment day. That's why every word must be measured and tested. Jesus, the model tongue. Now, most of us, when we think about Jesus, we're not thinking about a tongue. We're thinking about a life, a life lived. However, Jesus modeled the use of the human tongue or the use of the human mouth perfectly. And the way he did it is truly astounding, okay? What a holy consecrated, holy given. Listen to Deuteronomy 18. Speaking of Jesus to come, this is a foreshadow, a Christophany in the Old Testament. I will raise them up a prophet, Jesus, from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, 
and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. So Jesus was one whose words were placed in his mouth by God. And in the New Testament, the way he describes it is the Father's words. He only spoke that which the Father was speaking. Okay, this is a very important uh, picture that we're going to build here. Whoa. For I have not spoken of myself, this is Jesus speaking, but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. Now, doesn't this seem strange? Jesus did not speak anything of his own. He did not have his own words. His words that he spoke were the words given to him by the Father. Now, when you translate that into your life, don't you start getting a little awkward? It's like, what does that mean? Well, the same way that Jesus only spoke that which his Father is speaking, my presentation to you would be, and that Christian life overcome by Jesus Christ learns to speak only the words that Jesus is speaking. Words that edify, words that bring life. And that's the test. I know that his commandment is life everlasting. The words that he spoke were life. Remember? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Jesus, when he spoke, he brought life. Yeah, he was crucified for it. They didn't want to hear his words. They might not want to hear your words either when Jesus gets a hold of you. However, Jesus only spoke that which the Father was speaking. What incredible dependence. He was modeling for us a life, a leaning life upon the Father. And then he's modeled that we are to then lean on him and his strength and his grace to enable us to wield this tongue for his glory. Believe thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the works. Now for the Ellerslie students in here, that should hearken back to this last week. It says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. What a Christian says is, I am in Christ and Christ is in me. And then at the end, it says, the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. Could you imagine us actually having the confidence to make that declaration? It's a scary declaration to make. But the Father that dwells in me, he does the works. We say, but the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ Jesus that dwells in me, he does the works. He's the one by his grace that has taken this body and is leading it and directing it. Now, Jesus had a role in his body, and that was to yield to the Father, to obey in the same role we have. We must yield and allow the Father's words to be that which come out of our life. In a sense, God gives us the intercom. And he says, this is my words. These are my words. And then he says, you speak those. And we have to be the ones to press that red button and go, uh, excuse me, uh, aisle five, clean up. We're the ones in the position to speak. But it's out of what's in the heart that that mouth is going to speak. So if the heart is wicked, if the heart is selfish, then what comes out is going to be that which is cursing and contention and brings death. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. Okay, this is established many, many times over by Jesus. For I have given unto them the words which thou gave me. 
and they have received them and have known surely that I came from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. It is the spirit that quickens, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Let no corrupt word escape. Ephesians 4 says, put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And this is what we talked about this last week at Ellerslie. We put off that old life, that old fleshly life ruled by the old man. It's been dealt with on the cross. And so God says, put it off. Put it off like a garment. Take it off and put on the new man. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. It's like the equivalent of saying, all right, we've put off the old life, we've put on the new, which means Jesus Christ is now at the helm. He sits in the director's chair. So no more are we going to use this tongue and this speaker system to do what we once did. There's no more lying now. Because God doesn't lie. God is truth. Light doesn't need the blending of shadow. It's light that now lives within us. And there is no lie in God. Therefore, there's no room for lying in us. And then it says, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. We are now able to speak forth the realities of the kingdom of heaven. The truth can come forth because the truth dwells within us. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. The cross. This is going to sound a little strange. The blow to the head. Okay, when you think of a blow to the head, it sounds like you know, someone's coming up to you and clobbering you in the face. Well, it is. Okay? The cross was the blow to the head. Who's the head of the church? Jesus. Now, the head is where this mouth is. Okay, and that's why... Uh, ben has a message this semester, it's called the Almighty Defense, and it's just a profound message of how Jesus stood in the gap for us, and basically all that was wrong with us was made right in Jesus, and he took the penalty for all that which we should be taking the penalty for. And for us, a fool's lips bring strife, and his mouth calls for blows. What does our mouth call for? Blows. So... This statement in the Old Testament is really fascinating in light of the cross because Jesus is no fool. Jesus is the son of God. He's perfection. In his mouth was no guile. I mean, in him was no sin. And yet, here we have the cross, and I don't know if you remember what was happening when he spoke to the high priest and then even what was happening at the cross, but uh, himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. When his own, who his own self bore our sins, his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. For in him, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. You have a temptation for this tongue, don't you? You have bait. Well, guess what? There is one 
who has stood in your place so that he may be able to now aid you in your temptation. What you need is not willpower. What you need is Jesus. What you need is to yield to your rightful king and allow him to come on in and overtake this body and to be the one that now directs this little member that has been causing so much difficulty. So a fool is meant to receive a blow, but instead of the fool receiving the blow, which is us, who received the blow? But Jesus, he took the blow for us. He was struck upon the cheek and his mouth touched with vinegar that our mouths might bear the word of God and wield the almighty sword of the spirit. One of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand and they spit upon him and smote him on the head. They filled a sponge with vinegar and put it to his mouth. God Almighty, the one in whose mouth was no guile, he took the blow that is meant for the fool. He took our blow so that we might have mouths that proclaim his glory. The cross where the tongue was tamed. Romans 6, 11 through 18. Now you're going to notice, I'm not trying to diminish scripture by actually having a slash through the words members. You can still see the word, and that's the actual word. However, what I want to do, just for the ability for us to see this a little more clearly, is I want to take the word members and stick the word tongue in there instead. Because that's what it's talking about. The tongue is the smallest member of the body. Okay, and I want you to realize that what happened on that cross happened so that your tongue, as one of the members, might be now used for the glory of King Jesus. Likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. That director's position and that old man that have been controlling your life, with you sitting there and the old man in the flesh controlling your operation, let it not happen anymore. You must reckon yourselves dead indeed unto sin. Why? Because at that cross, Jesus dealt with it. He finished it. The old man actually has had legal annulment of his power. There is no more position that he has, but you must rise up and exert the truth of Scripture, the truth of what took place 2,000 years ago, and say, out. Come in, Jesus. Go out, flesh. You have no position here. He'll argue. He'll wrangle. He'll debate you. You hold up the manumission papers. That's what a slave has when he's set free. Signed in the blood of Jesus and say, out. According to the authority of what is written. So let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield your tongues as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. But yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your tongues as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid! Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey is servants you are to whom you obey? Whether sin, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. The power of the purified tongue. So remember the name of this message is the power of the tongue. Well, one of the things we could meditate upon is the power of an unrighteous tongue. 
You know, many of you in here have some deep issues in your life because your parents wielded their tongue over your life in a manner which actually undermined God's agenda in your life. You just lugged around a lot of baggage and a lot of funny thoughts about reality and a lot of funny thoughts about you. And so the tongue can be wielded in such a way where it literally brings death, even by people in positions that are supposed to be bringing life, like pastors. We can do it. We're not immune to it. Okay, so the power of the purified tongue. Many of us have come up close and personal with the power of a proud tongue. But how many of us have ever experienced the power of the purified tongue? Well, that's what the word of God is in a nutshell. It's the power of the purified tongue. The words of the Lord are pure words, tried seven times. And that's the word of God spoken, okay? So that's one evidence of the power of it. But how many of you have had someone in your life who has spoken truth to you? And even if the truth hurts, boy, that'll change you. How about having someone in your life that speaks words of edification and encouragement to you and exhorts your soul? It changes you. It lifts you. One singular conversation can turn someone who's depressed and staring at the dirt to be looking upwards to heaven. What was the difference? It was words spoken. It was the power of the tongue. However, we know that Christians can fake and say things that are good. However, there's probably no greater detriment to Christianity than a hypocrite. In other words, you can try and get good words to come out of your operation, but if in the inside you're all about self, That'll eventually come out, and guess what? Your life will not match up with your words, and your entire testimony gets thrown out. And as a result, Christianity goes down the toilet, too. Christianity is a bunch of hypocrites. How many times have you heard that? Why? It's people trying to say the right thing out of their squawk box, but living for self on the inside. But what if? What if we had purity on the inside, and Jesus was ruling here, and we only spoke that which he was asking us to speak? I don't want you to be paranoid about speaking. To the point, because when I'm saying this, I don't want it to mean you can't say hello when someone's walking by you. I want you to engage the world around you with love. And it does not need to be a stultified thing where it's just like, well, I'm not hearing from God right now what to speak. You have heard from God what to speak. It's words of life, words of honor, words of truth. You already know that. Those are the words that have been given you, okay? And so when I get up here, I don't panic about the fact that I have to Think, okay, is that the exact phraseology? No, it's a translation, if you will, of what God has already laid upon my heart. And when we spend time in the word, guess what? We know God's words. And then when we meet people, we edify them with God's words, God's words of life. We know how he sees people around us. And we can speak that to them. And yes, there are times when I might have a specific weight on my soul and a burden in my soul to say to you and say, I just think you need to know today how much God loves you. And you could just sit there dumbfounded. It's very simple words, aren't they? But you could sit there dumbfounded and go, how did you know? I don't know. You just walk with God, you, you know. And you can speak those words that are needed in the moment to edify and to strengthen. But I don't want you to panic, be all paranoid where you never speak again, even though it could be beneficial for some of us to do that for a season. We've had Ellerslie students that have tried to go on speaking fasts. They're like, my tongue is sure getting me in trouble. However, you can go on a fast for... 40 years and never change the real problem. You need to yield your life over to Jesus Christ. The power of the purified tongue. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. 
Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me. When you behold the Lord high and lifted up, it reveals uncleanness of your lips. It's one of the number one things that is going to take place in your life as you focus on Jesus Christ, as you study his word. As we lift high Jesus, you know one of the number one things you begin to realize is, I'm a man of unclean lips. My body is not being used properly by God. If that's God, I don't know exactly if I've been hospitable to him. Because he's holy, 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 and I'm dirty, dirty, dirty. So it says, then I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth. I don't know what that would feel like. But a coal, a burning hot coal upon the lip would not be comfortable. Okay, I think all of us could conclude that without needing to study it at any great length. Conviction's not very comfortable either. The awakening to the realities that we are on the throne and we shouldn't be, you know, it doesn't feel very good. Because we've been caught red-handed as a rebel. Yeah, it doesn't feel good to realize that you've been antagonistic towards the God of the universe. But listen, he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? Okay, now this is a very important scene, yet a lot of things are happening very quickly, and they're quite dramatic, okay? Things that we don't usually watch in life. But we have a man who is beholding the living God. And he recognizes his sin. And then there's this burning coal that comes from off the altar, which, by the way, the altar is the place of sacrifice. So that fire which comes forth from the altar. Okay, I don't know if you can put, you know, dot a whole bunch of things and connect them here. The, that coal that comes forth from the altar in the presence of God comes out and touches the lips and his iniquity, his sin, is purged. Well, how could a piece of coal do that? It wasn't just a piece of coal. It's a picture of that which will be upon the altar and that which will send forth a fire to purge the saints of God of their uncleanness. Now, here's a very important line. Right after that, it says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? The context is very purposeful. The very first words, the very first words spoken after being touched with that coal. Then said I, here am I, send me. The first words of the holy fire touched lips. Now, this is my point I'm going to make. Okay, All this to get to this. You know that speaker system that you have on your life? That mouth? When you are changed, when you are truly changed in the interior of your existence, the first testimony of it is what begins to come out of that speaker system. 
the first fruits in your life. That's why it's called confession of sin and confession of faith. That isn't what saves you, is speaking it. It's what automatically happens as a result of Jesus' invasion and that call coming and touching your lips and purging you of that sin, purging you of that operation within that has held you hostage and held your tongue hostage to its fleshly agenda. You've been purged of it. What is the first line? Here am I. Send me. You know how crazy of a statement that is? Do you know what that means? He'll be killed. Sheep among wolves. Are you sure you know what you're talking about? My body belongs to Jesus Christ. Look what he did for me. I'm his. The first results of the change is to share, is to speak, is to proclaim. It's called evangelization. Go and make disciples of all men. Go! The first sign of the changed life is God takes this body, puts it on wheels and sends it into this earth. We have a mobile temple of God. The gift of holy fire touched lips. Okay, now remember what was taken off that uh, altar? It was fire. The coal is housing fire. It's not the coal that burned his lips. It's the fire from the altar that burned his lips. It just happened to be held in the coal. The gift of holy fire touched lips. Do you remember in James what it said about the, the tongue? It said it is a fire. Isn't that interesting? But it's fire came from hell. And now we have this very unique picture in the New Testament of a tongue of fire. Acts 1. This is before Pentecost. But you shall receive power after that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. I'm not trying to give a teaching on the spiritual gift of tongues here, okay? Even though I'm going to be going right over the same scriptures that have created great division in the church of Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to diminish the spiritual gift of tongues, and I'm also not trying to promote it in this conversation. That's not what this message is about, okay? Most of us, when we start getting close to Pentecost, you know, some of us will be like... I'm paranoid about what's going to come out. I don't want you to be paranoid. God's word is safe, okay? If he wants you speaking in tongues, that's his business, isn't it? If he holds your tongue, you don't have anything to worry about. I don't know about that then. That's his business. That's not what we're talking about right now. Why are they going to receive power? For the gift of tongues? No, it's not what it says. That they might be witnesses unto me. Remember what Isaiah said. Here am I, send me. That they might be witnesses is the reason the power is being given. Now let's go to Acts 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven, which means divvied up or distributed, tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And the words I've picked here to try and emphasize, because this is a hard passage for some of us to come from more conservative backgrounds to read through. And began to speak, it says with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now this is a strange scene, okay? I'll be the first one to admit it. 
It says tongues of fire came down from heaven. The word tongues in that situation, tongues of fire, does not merely mean a flame of fire that happens to look like a tongue. It means tongue. It does. Tongue. Like tongue. A member of the body. But it's a fiery tongue. Okay, I, I recognize that's a little strange. But what's God saying? God is sending forth his very life into his people. Why? So that they could become his witnesses. So that they could go into this world and use that speaker system to tell of his glory. Something they are ill-equipped to do. And right now, as they're, when they're living in the flesh, their tongue is the great enemy of God. But now God comes in to the saints of God. That's what Pentecost is. It's an invasion of God's very life. He is filling this temple. And as a result, the first testimony of it in the New Testament is they begin to speak. Isn't that interesting? Now, what they spoke is of great debate. Obviously, the people in Jerusalem heard their own languages, so it was intelligible. It wasn't just some you know, gibberish. It was very real language that was spoken. But what were they speaking? This is the whole point I want to emphasize. They began to speak as the Spirit gave them utterance. They spoke from a new well. Not from themselves, not their own words, but they were learning just as Jesus spoke what the Father was speaking. Now the saints of God have the same tongue of fire. The same tongue of fire that was in Jesus, they now have. But it's a different fire. It's a fire that is set on fire by heaven. Not a fire that is set on fire by hell. An empowered tongue. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. That's what Jesus said. What would it sound like to us? Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Spirit saith unto me, so I speak. Okay? Now, again, I don't want you to get paranoid about never speaking again because you don't know what it means to hear from God some clear revelation of something. You have the clear revelation in the Word of God. I don't want you to panic about these things and trip over that. What I want you to say is, God, my tongue belongs to you. And no longer is it going to be used for cursing and contention. No longer is it going to be used to tear down. No longer is it going to be a voice box for irritation, frustration, for belittling, for coarseness and rudeness. My tongue can now be used for you to share what you want to share with this earth. In every situation. I don't know if you've ever asked for a tongue of fire to come upon you. But that's merely the Spirit of God. That's just how it was visually demonstrated. Because what the first change to the spiritual life is in these members is the tongue. Because if the tongue begins to be purified, what happens to the rest of the body? It too is purified. If a man can bridle his tongue, then he's pure. He's perfect, it says in James. So therefore, when our tongue comes into alignment, that means that our heart has been set right. That means our director's chair is now occupied by Jesus Christ, which is what Pentecost is, by the way. Don't get weirded out by Pentecost. It's Jesus coming in. The spirit of Christ Jesus. In Colossians, it says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Or Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
You want glory to come out of this life? You need Christ in you, seated on that throne. You cannot have flesh and the infilling of the Spirit. Jesus must move in. Then the Spirit of God is able to dwell freely in this environment known as the human body. And these lips of ours, this tongue of ours, can now become useful for life. The Church of the Tamed Tongue. May we, the consecrated of Almighty God, speak only that which is profitable, that which is edifying, that which is necessary, that which is honorable, that which is loving, that which is pure, that which keeps a trust, that which preserves truth, that which brings God glory. And then I added two more. That which he is speaking, and that which is born of holy fire. Not hellish fire, holy fire. Holy Father, we need holy fire. And you're the one that has it. And you say that you are glad, happy, delighted to give your saints the Holy Spirit when we ask. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would guard those of us that have been raised in environments where we fear and we tremble before such a notion But Lord Jesus, we need you inside of us. That's what you came to purchase on the cross, and I pray that you would, in an orderly and beautiful way, begin to fill your saints with the life of Christ Jesus. And that we would model the use of the tongue just as you modeled it to us. And that we would find ourselves dependent, that we would yield this member, this tongue, to you as an instrument of righteousness and not as an instrument of the flesh any longer. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would train us as the body in how this looks and how this works, that we would not give any space to the enemy in this arena, that we would not have lying lips, that we would not have exaggerating lips, that we would not have crude lips, that we would not have belittling lips, that we'd not manipulate people with our words, that we would not super-spiritualize things, But Lord Jesus, that we would walk in truth as you were in the truth and in the light as you were in the light. Please, Lord Jesus, employ our lips and our tongues for your glory. And if we must be silent, may we be silent as the church of Jesus Christ. And may we learn to live with our lives the greatness and the glory of King Jesus. And may our words come into alignment with it. We trust you, Lord Jesus to do the work that is necessary in and amongst us as your body. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.